Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. So glad you are with us for the Tuesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We are brought to you today by Stamps.com. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in Three Martini as your code. And we'll tell you a little bit later in the podcast about uh, all the wonderful little things that you'll get for using the Three Martini code at Stamps.com. Jim, we have bad, we think, uh, bad and crazy martinis for conservatives today. The first bad was kind of a late insertion here because it seems to have just happened. Massive explosion in Beirut, Lebanon. This was massive. I mean, people are sharing it on Twitter and other social media, and you see the series of small explosions, and you think, oh, that looks like a a pretty bad fire. And then all of a sudden, this boom uh, that just shocks the whole neighborhood. And there's even reports that it pushed uh, the tide back out in the Mediterranean, uh, the impact of that blast. And and so that's pretty powerful. So we don't know exactly what's going on here. I was saying before we started, I hope it means the Israelis found, you know, uh, uh, Hezbollah munitions dumped there. But uh, who knows exactly what happened? Some say it's a fireworks plant. We just don't know. But huge explosions in the Middle East deserve some attention. Yeah, and it's been interesting. In fact, you know, both the Middle East has not been in the focus of American attention for a while. And we also have not really paid much attention to Lebanon in a while. And when you hear, oh, you know, explosions, if you haven't seen the video, it's, it's worth taking a look. Um, I, I was kind of struck by how many people uh, saw that. Apparently, there have been initial fire or explosions. If you look closely, you can kind of see some sparks. I suppose that could make the argument that this genuinely was a, a, a warehouse full of fireworks, but it really doesn't. Uh, that, that subsequent explosion does not seem like fireworks in the slightest. And just on a massive scale, I I completely would understand if someone initially mistook it for a nuclear explosion. Let me emphasize very clearly, this is not a nuclear explosion, Uh, but it is a huge, huge explosion. You can see the shockwave and the the blast seem to envelop several square blocks of an area by the waterfront in Beirut. We don't know how many words on loss of life. You figure an explosion that big is going to have a fairly significant one. Hopefully it's minimal, but it looks uh, really massive and jaw-dropping. One video, which is one of the longer ones, you see the fire, you see the plume of smoke, then you see that massive explosion going out in, in, in a giant sphere in all directions. And you feel the sound wave of that explosion, I think it's like 35, 38 seconds later. It is a massive explosion. Um, and so we don't know exactly what this means. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, Greg, many people first thought might be, ah, you you know, the Israelis are hitting somebody. This doesn't seem to me like an Israeli hit just because of the sheer scale of collateral damage. We're not going to get any pictures in from downtown in for at least a little while, but this probably is going to look something like uh, Ground Zero on 9-11. This is just a massive explosion that just envelops several blocks, which is really, really ominous. We will know more as we know. That is what is known as we tape this. But, uh, you know, the Middle East has not been front and center in our attention for a while, and I think it may be, at least for the next couple of days. Well, just because it hasn't been on the front page doesn't mean that a lot of bad guys aren't up to bad things. And Lebanon's kind of the the gathering point for a lot of them. The Iranians certainly have their, their fingers into Lebanon, Syria, obviously, and then, of course, the proxies as well. So, uh, we again, we don't know. But uh, there's a lot of nefarious uh, folks and a lot of nefarious agendas, unfortunately, happening in Lebanon and a lot of innocent people 
caught up in the middle of it. Uh, and hopefully they're not the collateral damage. All right, well, let's talk about stamps.com. That's a lot happier. Uh, since we don't have a good martini, stamps.com can be the closest thing we have today. Um, we're slowly adjusting to a new normal, uh, although we're still not sure what a normal is going to look like for, for school and some other things yet. But we're slowly getting back out there more and more. But we still need to be smart about how we do our business. And luckily, there's stamps.com to make things a whole lot easier. Thousands of small business owners have discovered the benefit of stamps.com in recent months when they really didn't feel like going to the post office. They've been able to keep their businesses running and avoid those crowds all from their own computers. That's because with stamps.com, you can print postage on demand and avoid having to go to the post office. Plus, you'll save money with discounted rates you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com also offers UPS services with discounts up to 62% plus no residential surcharges. Stamps.com brings all the mailing and shipping services that you need right to your computer in the comfort of your own home or office. Whether you're a small business that's sending invoices, an online seller that's shipping out products, or you're just working from home and you need to mail stuff, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Simply use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send. Once your mail is ready, just leave it for your mail carrier. Schedule a pickup or drop it in a mailbox. It's just that simple. Like I said, with stamps.com, you get great discounts too. Five cents off of every stamp and up to 62% off of U.S. Postal Service and UPS shipping rates. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. Yeah, that really is a no-brainer when you think about it, right? I mean, you don't have to leave the house. You get everything for cheaper, and you don't have to uh, risk your health or even go find your mask. I mean, it really is the best of all worlds when it comes to keeping your business going. So right now, Three Martini Lunch listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale, all without any long-term commitment. Just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in three martini, all one word, three martini. That's stamps.com, then enter three martini. All right, Jim, let's move on to our second bad martini now. This one was in the hopper for a while, especially once uh, we saw the clips this morning. President Trump sat down with Jonathan Swan of Axios at the White House not long ago. And now we've got the interview that goes a little bit longer than a half an hour. And there's just certain things on there that should make uh, most people cringe. Obviously, two things are getting the most attention. Uh, but here's just an example of uh, the president and some of the things he said in this interview. We're going to look. Let's look. And if you look at death, yeah, uh, started to go up again. One. Well, right here, the United States is lowest in numerous categories. Uh, we're lower than the world. Lower than we're the lower world? than what is that? Europe. Take in what? Look. In what? Take a look. Right here. Here's case death. Oh, you're doing death as a proportion of cases. I'm talking about death as a proportion of population. That's where the U.S. is really bad. Well, well, Much worse than South Korea, Germany, etc. You can't. You can't do that. You have Why to go. Can't I do that? You have to go by. You have to go by where. Look, here is the United States. You have to go by the cases. John Lewis is lying in state in the U.S. Capitol. How do you think history will remember John Lewis? I don't know. I really don't know. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know John Lewis. Uh, he chose not to come to my. Uh, uh, inauguration. Uh, he chose. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I never met John Lewis. Actually, I don't believe. Do you find him impressive? Uh, 
I can't say one way or the other. I find a lot of people impressive. I find many people not impressive, but no, but I didn't Did go. you find his story he impressive? Come, he didn't come to my inauguration. He didn't come to my State of the Union speeches. And that's okay. That's his right. So, Jim, you've got the president incapable of giving any sort of legacy statement on John Lewis simply because Lewis refused to go to his inauguration, which Lewis uh, was perhaps a bit petulant in doing. He did the same thing to George W. Bush. But nonetheless, you should be able to, as president of the United States, look beyond that and, and, and see the man's greater legacy. Uh, and then the issue of refusing to look at uh, the way that COVID deaths are chronicled as a, as a percentage, whether it's infections or population, it's not casting the president in a good light. And you got some folks today wondering whether his team uh, is even helping him at this point. We, I guess we can take these both separately. The first is the president seemed really unprepared for this interview. I, I, you shouldn't be blindsided by a question about John Lewis when John Lewis is laying in state at the U.S. Capitol. Any other president would have been able to go through the pro forma, you know, we had our disagreements, but I have great respect for what he did during the civil rights era and the fight for civil rights and equality. You know, we, we, every other politician of every, of, of every major party has managed to go out and give a perfectly fine, non-controversial, non-headache-inducing you know, you know, words of praise for John Lewis. The man just died. The only thing Trump seems to know about him is that he did not attend the inauguration. And he gripes about it, and he goes on in this long narcissistic tangent until finally, like, he keeps saying he doesn't know how history is going to recover. He doesn't have any, Swan keeps giving him multiple bites at the apple to, to offer some more kind words about John Lewis. And Trump just won't do it until finally he says he had a man who had a lot of heart for his, you know, it just is a, um, you can tell President Trump was going to do everything possible to avoid saying a kind word about a man who just died. Yes, he was a Democrat. He was a pretty darn liberal Democrat. And if you want to you know, argue about his political stances over the years, fine. But you know, the president is petulant and narcissistic when he needs at least. And on the you know, deaths uh, uh, per capita or deaths per million, the president has a legitimate argument when he says, yes, if you get coronavirus in the United States, your chance of survival are really good, uh, in part because we have very good treatment, we have very good doctors, and we you know, have managed to scramble together uh, a good way of keeping people alive. Um, the president, however, like, you know, the, the st statistics Swan is looking at are accurate. I just have a corner post that's currently on the editor's desk pointing out that right now the United States ranks 10th from the top in deaths per million, not cases per million, deaths per million. Uh, and of those who are ahead of us, some of them are like uh, uh, San Marino and Andorra, very small countries with very low populations where if you have just a handful of cases, well then proportionally, it's gonna be a big chunk of your population. Um, it's not good. Now, it's not all the president's fault. In the corner post, I lay out a bunch of reasons. You can point out the fact that we don't really know accurate numbers from places like China or Russia or Malaysia or Indonesia, a whole bunch of countries that are uh, either authoritarian or third world and just are not collecting data that we probably can say are, are reliable or comparable to ours. Um, but that having been said, this is not a good number and this is something you'd want to get. And, and Trump is just seems utterly flustered by this and he's waving his charts in the face of uh, Jonathan Swan, basically saying, well, my staff says we're doing okay, so we must be doing okay. It is an exceptionally poor performance by the president. I think you know, some of this is, is indeed on his staff, but some of this is on him and the fact that he apparently either doesn't pay attention to his briefings or doesn't really care to know the kind of information you need to know if you're going to have anything resembling a defense of how his administration has performed. 
being prepared for the interview is on him and he simply doesn't care anymore. So Jim, we've got uh, that uh, performance. And then of course, we've got uh, his main rival this year who is basically AWOL and you've got people who support him who think that uh, the best case scenario is to just go into a hole and not even debate and go away. So uh, what are we headed for in the last three months of this campaign? Pain, as Clever Lang said. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk about some more elections. Uh, let's go to our final crazy martini here. And Jim, we still don't know who won the Democratic primary in New York's 12th Congressional District. This is a primary that was held on June 23rd. And yes, of course, there are a lot of mail-in ballots, but you really should be able to count all the ballots well over a month now. Uh, and, and, but now we've got a big fight because 20% of the mail-in ballots were not counted. And of course, the candidate who's behind, Patel, is demanding that the ballots be counted. And so Patel has taken this to court. And guess what, Jim? The law is apparently not the law. According to Judge Annalisa Torres, an Obama appointee, United States District Court judge, quote, For the reasons stated in this opinion, the preliminary injunction is granted, that was filed by Patel, as follows. The commissioners of the New York State Board of Elections are ordered to direct all local boards of elections to count all otherwise valid absentee ballots cast in the June 23rd primary, which were, one, received by June 24th, 2020, without regard, without regard to whether such ballots are postmarked by June 23rd. 2020, and two, received by June 25th, 2020, so long as such ballots are not postmarked later than June 23rd. So, Jim, if we're going to do this, and it seems like we're going to do this, we need to have the utmost confidence that people know what they're doing and that people's votes are secure. And so when you have judges just wandering in and going, yeah, you know that election day rule? Well, let's just not do that this time. Yeah, Greg, I can't think of anything more likely to undermine faith in free and fair elections than changing the rules for counting ballots and bringing them together and counting them uh, after the voting process has started. You, You need to have a clear sense and everybody needs to know what the rules are before we begin with this. Yes, because of the pandemic, we're in very unusual circumstances. Um, I voted absentee, or actually they call it in-person absentee here in Virginia. That sounds an awful lot like early voting to me. I've never quite understood (laughs) what the distinction is there because if you're absentee but you're in person, well, then you're not really absentee now, are you? Uh, But you go down to the county uh, office, they they give it to you. They, you know, in Virginia, you need to say, you know, you'll be traveling that day or have some other reason to reasonably think you would not be able to vote in the normal process. I think people should be allowed to do that. I, I think, I do think you can start too early. There are certain states that are starting, I think, 45 days before the election, which puts you in like, September 18th or so, which strikes me as really on the early side. But I think you should give people, you know, two-week window. Um, I recall the day of the Obama-Hillary Clinton primary here in Virginia. It was February, March, sometime that time of year, late winter, and there was an ice storm. And the roads got really icy. And at least at that point in Virginia, polls closed at 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. And a whole bunch of people who planned on voting after work did not get to the polls in time because the roads were icy and there were all kinds of terrible accidents and traffic was backed up, et cetera. So I think generally you should try to make it easier for people to vote. Problem is, a couple states have been doing voting by mail for several cycles and they've worked out the kinks. They know how things work. They're prepared for it. A whole bunch of states have not. And this is, a, this is where you run into real trouble where you basically try to make up a new way of put, getting, putting ballots out to people and gathering them 
on the fly without a whole bunch of experience with a whole bunch of counties and cities all using their own particular systems and generally running on volunteers. This is a formula for trouble. Any ruling that indicates we are not, we will count ballots cast after the postmarked deadline indicates that the rules are optional, that we can change them as needed, and it just seems like inviting people. Well, if on election day, you know you're down by X number of votes, well, now you gotta just know exactly how many more votes you have to go out and get people to cast because they don't need to be mail in the mailbox by election day. Um, it is pretty infuriating that uh, this judge does not seem to recognize the ramifications of a decision like this. Hopefully there are subsequent legal decisions that do not lead to this mentality spreading throughout the country as we approach November because I tend to think deadlines should mean something. Otherwise, you can just cast your ballots willy-nilly and we'll just count them as they come in. Uh, you know, we, we all have a sneaking suspicion we're not going to have an answer on election night. Um, decisions like this make this uh, just about a near certainty if you can legally cast ballots after election day. We're going to have Brenda Snipes all over the country here, right? I mean, oh, if you God. have all these people well, counting stuff for weeks and weeks and weeks on end, as my colleague Kyle Smith said, this is basically inviting this election to turn into 2000 again. I don't see, unless it's a landslide in one direction or the other, I don't see how it doesn't. I hope uh, we get the guy with the bug eyes, you know, <laughs> looking for the hanging chad. Yes. I don't think there's going to be a famous picture of John Bolton looking over the <laughs> punch cards this time, though. Just, just, just an idea. I don't think they have punch cards anymore. But uh, uh, yeah, I, first of all, you talked about the early voting. One of the defenses and you mentioned this in the morning jolt today bill crystal the reason that biden should not debate trump was that you know early voting starts in some states before the first debate and it'd be really unfair to the debate people who've put so much work into this to change the schedule now so we should just not have them the other thing here and this is uh on politico today trump's war on mail-in voting might be backfiring on him. New private polling shared first with Politico showed that Republicans have become overwhelmingly concerned about mail balloting, which Trump has claimed uh, will lead to widespread voter fraud, a potentially decisive slice of Trump's battleground state base. 15% of Trump voters in Florida, 12% in Pennsylvania, and 10% in Michigan said that getting a ballot in the mail would make them less likely to vote in November. Not exactly the uh, thing you want to hear if you're the Trump campaign. If the Trump administration believes that the situation of the pandemic, you know, again, the president a couple of days ago said we should delay the election, right? If you really think this is, you know, this is the case, and by the way, this seems pretty likely, you know, Wisconsin seemed to get through, but winter comes along, temperature goes down, people spend more time indoors, you might have more cases, also beginning a cold and flu season. You know, maybe it makes sense. Maybe a campaign, look, if, the other thing is also the, the, some campaigns love absentee voting and early voting. Because each person who goes out and fills out a ballot ahead of election day is one less person you need to worry about on election day. So you don't have to worry about getting out the votes or does this person need a ride or something like that. So most Republican campaigns traditionally have said, hey, if you got that early voting option, go out and do it. Go take it. That's, that's you know, we, we can bank those votes and we don't need to worry about them on election day. Um, the president doesn't seem to have that mentality and he doesn't seem to grasp that this could be a potentially self-destructive political impulse by making his own voters believe that voting by mail or early voting for some reason is not reliable or is not, is not trustworthy. 
Well, it's a fairly big primary day today in a number of states. You've got the big Republican Senate primary in Kansas between Congressman Roger Marshall and Chris Kobach, who uh, was the Republican nominee for governor in Kansas and lost a couple of years ago. He was also head of Trump's uh, Election Reform Commission very briefly until it ended up getting disbanded. Uh, allegedly, Rashida Tlaib has a tough primary. I'll believe that when I actually see some results that suggest it's a, a tough primary. Uh, and also, Tennessee Republicans will be deciding their nominee to replace Lamar Alexander. So, Jim, we <laughs> will be looking for some results, possibly today, possibly several days from now. Who knows? You know, if Kobach wins, I'm going to join Thomas Frank in asking, what's the matter with Kansas? There's a lot of Republicans very worried that uh, he cannot win statewide, as evidenced by the gubernatorial race. And apparently there's an ex-Republican who's poised to be the Democratic nominee. So they're obviously going to run the Democratic nominee as a quote-unquote moderate uh, in Kansas, and we'll see what happens there. But uh, in an election where you're already scrambling to maintain the majority, perhaps, in the U.S. Senate. Kansas is not where you want to have to spend a lot of resources. Let me put it this way, Kansas. Alabama figured this out pretty fast. Anyway, Jim, uh, fun. We'll see who wins again at some point. But I'll see you on Wednesday. See you Wednesday, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And don't forget our good sponsors over at Stamps.com. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in three martini. Please subscribe to the podcast. Leave us a kind review with five stars. Also get us on those home devices by saying play three martini lunch podcast. And please join us Wednesday for the next three martini lunch.